Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Welcome to TGI Crime Day. Today's episode is part two of the Catherine Bolkovac story. If you haven't watched or listened to part one, I will have that linked in the description of this episode so you can get all caught up to speed before you jump into part two because otherwise you will be lost. So make sure you listen to part one. As a quick reminder for those of you who did listen to part one, we left off just after Kathy sent an email to 50 of her colleagues reminding them that the IPTF, United Nations, and DynCorp contractors were in Bosnia to, in fact, help rebuild a country that had suffered a devastating war and not to cover each other's asses in sex trafficking scandals. As a human rights worker, Kathy's entire job was to help the people of Bosnia, and as she uncovered a horrific ring of human trafficking, people above her were pushing her to drop it and ignore the red flags. There were trafficked women and children who were being held captive, who were coming forward with information linking the local police, IPTF members, UN officials, and DynCorp contractors to these brothels and illegal sex rings. The more Kathy uncovered, the more certain people in power tried to shut her up. One person that was chasing Kathy's job was the deputy commissioner, Michael J. Steers. Kathy had been working on a case where 16 women and girls came forward with specific names, identifiers such as tattoos, gold teeth, etc., and actual photo evidence from some of these brothels operating in bars that showed that these people were in fact there. Kathy and her team were planning to have the women look at a photo lineup of the IPTF officers and see if they were able to identify any of these men as quote-unquote clients. Steers decided to take it upon himself to go after Kathy for standing up for the trafficking victims, and before she went on a two-week leave to the U.S., he essentially promised her that when she got back, she wouldn't have a position to come back to. At first, Kathy didn't really take Steers seriously. It seemed like a lot of talk and not a lot of action. He only had three weeks left in his contract with DynCorp, so once she got back from her leave, she would only have to put up with him for one final week before they went their separate ways, and that thought was getting her through. However, that thought was not exactly correct. While Kathy was gone, Steers was doing his best smear campaign of Kathy's reputation. The person above Steers, Commander Corduroy, didn't seem to have an issue with Kathy or her viewpoints and opinions on the work that they needed to be doing in human rights and stopping sex trafficking, which is good, but Commander Corduroy was temporarily out of the country and Steers was acting as the commander in his place. Steers jumped on that opportunity as quick as he could to protect the disgusting individuals participating in the brothels and trying to cover up the huge, insane, obnoxious amounts of corruption that was clearly happening here. While Kathy was gone, her supervisor, Madeline Reese, was doing her best to stick up for Kathy and to get things handled. Essentially, her direct supervisors and some of the higher-ups didn't have an issue with what Kathy's email said and felt like it was the correct thing to do, but there were a few people in power positions that were American DynCorp contractors. And if you remember from part one, the DynCorp contractors basically had legal immunity. They weren't under U.S. law, they weren't under military expectations because they were hired by a contractor and they weren't actually military, and they weren't held to the Bosnian laws based on the U.N. agreement. I don't get it. 
There was a particular group of DynCorp workers who took full advantage of being able to break the law and acted like it was the purge, and they just did whatever they wanted, however they pleased. Unfortunately, a lot of those people acting that way had a lot of power and say over people's jobs. And like I said, a lot of Kathy's direct supervisors and even the commander, while they didn't have an issue with Kathy, Steers insisted that he had actually gone and spoken with the U.S. ambassador and the State Department and Commander Corduroy, and they had all agreed that Kathy should be dismissed immediately and repatriated back to the U.S. When Kathy got back to Bosnia, Steers told her that they needed to meet, and suddenly his demeanor was all friendly and cheerful, and I assume probably very condescending based on his attitude. Uh, and he told her, quote, This is not intended to be purely disciplinary, and the actions I am taking are for your own benefit, as it appears, or at least as it is taken by the content of your email, that you are psychologically burnt out. I've been in the field many years and talked to many psychologists who stated incidents like this were due to burnout and the best thing to do to completely remove the person from the position for a period of time. This is the commissioner's decision. I'm just the messenger here. End quote. Seriously? Kathy informed him that she in fact was not burnt out and that she expected him to follow the protocol of dismissal, but Steers wasn't playing by the rules. Why would he? He never does. From what I understand, there should have been very specific orders of events that happened for Kathy to be removed from her position and sent to a different office. First of all, they needed to prove that there was an actual reason for this dismissal and not just quote-unquote burnout, that they didn't actually do any follow-up or get any kind of proof of. So with no evaluation, no chance to appeal this decision, and the commissioner out of the country, Kathy was expected to go quietly back to the IPTF Sarajevo station and take a position anywhere but with the Human Rights Division, which was the whole reason she went to Bosnia in the first place. People rallied around Kathy as much as they possibly could. Madeline Reese went directly to the special representative of the Secretary General, Jacques-Paul Klein, who said that he would back up Steers' decision. Steers claimed that he had called the U.S. Embassy, who approved of him dismissing Kathy, with no actual reason. So Kathy called the U.S. Ambassador to follow up, which was very smart. And of course, no one at the Embassy had any idea what she was talking about because he didn't call. It was just a weird threat. Kathy wasn't doing anything wrong by asking for protocol to be followed in removal from her position. Everything should have been in writing. She should have been able to appeal this dismissal. And they still hadn't actually given her a valid reason other than Steers saying that she was burnt out. Do they accuse anyone else of being burnt out when they send emails saying that they should defend the victims that they are there to protect? Or is she just doing her job? So not only did SRSG Klein tell Madeline that he was now on Steers' side, he tried to go after her position as well. He told her that he was sending someone straight to Genovia to speak with her supervisor, the High Commissioner of Human Rights, to get her removed from her job for defending a coworker from an unfair devotion. Madeline was able to call her supervisors and fill them in on what was happening, and luckily they took her side because you can't just get people kicked out of their jobs for asking questions and calling you out on not following procedure or logic. So Kathy and Madeline are getting kicked out of their jobs or like attempting to be kicked out of their jobs for asking questions and expecting procedures to be followed correctly. Meanwhile, people are being accused of actual crimes and they're like, hey, this guy was accused of sex crimes, but let's just ignore that and let him just go on his merry way without reprimand. But Kathy can't send an email. 
Even though it was a complete joke, there wasn't anything more that Kathy could do, so she was demoted to a deputy officer and had to leave the UN main headquarters building. She went back to her first apartment that she lived in in Sarajevo and began working a desk job at the IPTF station, answering phones, doing radio checks, and making daily reports of the area's activity. The following week, Steers left because his contract was up and Kathy's job at the gender desk sat empty for four months and the human rights and anti-human trafficking work that she was doing came to a grinding halt because no one was there to continue the work. Luckily, it wasn't all bad. Just like the first time her supervisors tried to get rid of her for asking too many questions, this demotion actually led to some good stuff because she was able to still do her work, but without as many eyes on her. She was often brought in as an expert advisor on cases since no one was in her old position and they needed someone to do it, and since she had to make those daily reports to send to main headquarters, she got to see all of the reports from every single IPTF station and knew everything that was going on everywhere. Every raid, every trafficking victim that was found, and every time the trafficking victims reported an IPTF officer or other diplomats, that report ended up on Kathy's desk. There were piles of evidence constantly coming her way. Things were starting to look up, but then Kathy got hit with a notification that there was an issue with her time cards and her past leave requests. She was told that her timesheets showed that there were six to ten days of leave that were not accounted for. She knew this was not an actual issue because she was very careful about this, and when she asked to see the file to double-check the dates because she knew it was a mistake, they told her that someone had taken her file, but no one could come up with where the file was, what the dates in question were, or who had authorized someone to take her file. Other colleagues had encouraged her not to fight this because the higher-ups were already breathing down her neck and it would only make things worse. It was so obvious that they were looking for any tiny little excuse that could justify them completely firing her and sending her back to the U.S. In November of 2000, IPTF monitors acted on unauthorized raids of three different nightclubs without the required local police or any kind of permission to do the raids. During the raid, the IPTF rounded up 34 young women who had been trafficked from Russia, Moldova, and Ukraine and brought them to the IPTF station to be interviewed while people from the clubs attempted to intimidate the women into staying silent. The trafficking victims identified 11 IPTF officers who frequented the clubs they just did the raids at. The husband of the nightclub owner was actually a former Bosnian police officer and called a press conference and publicly alleged that the IPTF deputy station commander had accepted bribe money, adding up to more than $13,000 in return for protection from any police action. 56 other bar owners and their bodyguards attended the press conference wearing shirts that said, quote, IPTF, go home. Milorad Milakovic, the nightclub owner's husband, was the president of the night bar owners of Priador and was the one that was actually paying the bribes to the police. But eventually he felt like it was a burden to keep giving them money, so he cut off the payment as well as access to the women's services. So that's why the deputy station commander and his colleagues, who were mostly American DynCorp members, did the raid was because they wanted to get even with him for cutting off their bribes and access to trafficking victims. Six IPTF monitors were sent home after that incident, but there had been 25 people who took part in the unauthorized raid. So why were only six of them sent home? As far as I can tell, this was the first ever time that any monitors had been sent home in relation to the sex trafficking they were 
allegedly participating in. And in my opinion, it only happened because there was a press conference that called them out and the IPTF slash the UN had to cover their asses. So since those bar and brothel owners released their own statement saying that the IPTF had been accepting bribes, SRS Decline issued a UN press statement saying that the events with the IPTF officers using illegal brothels are one of the clearest examples of the mission's failures to investigate allegations about IPTF monitors involved in trafficking-related misconduct. At this press conference, this was kind of the first time that these reporters were able to call out Klein on some of the stuff that was happening, and they asked him outright why only six of these people had been sent home if there had been 25 people involved, and he just kind of brushed off their questions and, like, finished up the press conference without taking any questions from anybody. Shortly after that incident, the UN had a Thanksgiving dinner for all of the workers, and at that dinner... Klein announced that because of the embarrassing reputations of the American monitors, a zero-tolerance policy would go into effect. Everyone looked around at each other, wondering what that actually meant, because it was already listed pretty clearly in their code of conduct that the IPTF monitors would be dismissed and or prosecuted for rape or sex crimes, and that didn't seem to happen to anyone before those six people. And the other 19 people didn't get any kind of disciplinary action, so I don't really know how you can call it a zero-tolerance policy. After that Thanksgiving announcement, it seemed like the zero-tolerance policy really wasn't being taken seriously because another huge incident happened. One day after work, Kathy got a ride home from one of her colleagues. This man's name was Carl. I don't think that's his real name. I think that's just what she called him in the book, but we will be calling him Carl. So Carl was from a small Midwestern town in the U.S., He was friendly and carefree and always happy to give people rides home from work and help out however he needed to. So as he's driving Kathy home, he sadly tells her that his girlfriend had left him and Kathy thought that he meant someone back home in the U.S. And Kathy asked him what happened and he said, quote, she ran away. Kathy was confused, so she pressed him further and Carl told her that she was a local girl. So Kathy thought that maybe he had been dating someone's secretary or language assistant and asked if maybe she just went to go back to live with her family somewhere in Bosnia. Then he shocked her by saying that she wasn't from Bosnia and thought that her passport had said either Romania or Moldova, but he couldn't remember. Again, Kathy was confused by this answer, so she asked Carl where he met this girl, and he told her that they met at the Como bar. And bells started going off, so Kathy asked if this girl had been trafficked, and Carl said that he didn't know, but that he had bought her from the owner of the Como club. Do you think Kathy wanted to just tuck and roll out of a moving vehicle at that point? I can't imagine having to sit through this conversation. Carl told her all of this completely unprompted, and he didn't seem to have any inhibitions about admitting that because he didn't think he'd done anything wrong. So he just kept talking, and Carl told her that he kept this girl at his apartment and that he wanted to take her back to the U.S. and marry her, but she stole his phone and ran away. When Kathy got home, probably shocked and horrified at what she had just heard, she told her friend and housemate Stan what happened, and together they went to talk to the commander who replaced Reed Jones. And as a reminder from last episode, Reed Jones was the one who sent out that email warning everyone that there was going to be a photo lineup for the trafficking victims to look at that basically got the ball rolling for Kathy's demotion. When he was called into the office, Carl confessed to everything, and he said that he didn't see anything wrong with what he had done. He said that other people did this all the time, including giving the Como Bar's owner tips about upcoming raids. He said that he had just wanted to help rescue this girl, and that's why he bought her from her captors. Can you even 
believe. I assume because he willingly gave up this information, Carl was sent home quietly. He was not prosecuted, nothing was put in writing, and he had no psychological evaluation. He wasn't even fined. Nothing. His record would stay completely spotless, and no one would ever know that he openly admitted to participating in human trafficking. He would just go back to the U.S. and get a job, and they would have no idea. Kathy spoke to Human Rights Watch about this exact situation, and Human Rights Watch is a New York-based company that's a non-governmental organization that looks into and reports on human rights issues. So Kathy did an interview with them. And after Kathy talked to them, a Washington Post reporter started sniffing around the events in Bosnia because, um, hello, this is seriously happening and no one is getting in trouble for it. An anonymous senior UN official talked to that reporter and said that this poor man had been duped, telling the reporter, quote, it's actually a love story. He fell in love with this girl and he bought her freedom, end quote. Seriously? Apparently, the zero tolerance policy was given a lot of wiggle room. Oh, but don't worry, it gets even worse because of course it does. At the DynCorp hangar on the base camp in Tuzla, Bosnia, all kinds of shit was happening. A man named Ben Johnston reported to his supervisors at DynCorp that his direct supervisors were buying illegal weapons and trafficking girls between the ages of 12 and 15 from the Serbian mafia. At work, on work premises. And a quick trigger warning just to prepare yourself. This is really upsetting. I'm not going to go into gruesome detail, but this next bit is really upsetting and really awful. The DynCorp men that were working at that station were forging passports for these girls, raping them, and then would buy and sell the girls amongst themselves in their spare time. The DynCorp site supervisor, John Hertz, videotaped himself raping two underage girls and then distributed the tape to the men in the hangar. It's on tape. Also, just a moment to let that sink in. Let that sink in. This was on a job site by people who were hired to go to this country to help after a huge war destroyed everything. And this is what they are doing with their time that they're being paid for. So alongside that, Ben Johnston also reported just a general lack of expertise in the DynCorp mechanics who were unethically replacing perfectly good parts just to pad the government bill and get the money for them. And they were also working while drunk, repairing multi-million dollar aircraft that carries the U.S. military members. When Ben turned these people in, DynCorp did nothing. Are we even surprised at this point? So he went above them to the Army Criminal Investigation Division, and the military police ended up doing a sting on the hangar and found that all of these allegations were true. However, these people were immune from the law, and I still don't understand how that could ever be a thing. As DynCorp contractors with the UN, they have legal immunity. I cannot understand it. I cannot wrap my head around it. I keep thinking that somehow I misread or misunderstood, but that is what it is. They literally have no laws. So the CID police could have tried to waive that immunity, but apparently they just didn't feel like jumping through the hoops of the paperwork. So without citing a solid reason, they turned the case back over to DynCorp, which sent Hertz and one other employee home quietly with no punishments, no blemish on their records. Again, what was the point of the zero tolerance policy? Then they had the audacity to fire Ben Johnston, who brought this information forward, and they wrote him a discharge letter that said he, quote, brought discredit to the company and the U.S. Army while working in Tuzla, end quote. When Ben went home, he was subjected to death threats and had to move from his hometown because he couldn't get a job because of that mark on his record. 
for calling out sex trafficking and the disgusting people involved. But the people who were actually involved in it just get like a pat on the head and sent home with no record of their crimes. But sure, Ben was the one making the company look bad. I cannot. After that, SRSG Klein doubled down on trying to make the mission look better. He had a big job ahead of him and his public appearance took a huge hit and he needed to do something drastic. So he whipped up a highly publicized raid plan called Operation Macro, which is the Bosnian word for pimp. And they performed 38 raids on suspected brothels and sent a press release the following day that said, quote, Bosnian club raids set 177 women free, end quote. Klein was quoted as saying that the raid was, quote, the most significant action to date against human trafficking and prostitution. What he failed to mention was that only 13 of the 177 quote-unquote rescued women actually made it to the safe house in Sarajevo, and 34 of these quote-unquote rescued and freed women were arrested, charged, and fined for prostitution and or not having proper ID. Also, that number doesn't add up to 177, so I don't really know what happened there. There's not really an explanation for it. So not only did some of the women get arrested, not one bar or brothel owners were charged with anything, even though many of them admitted to the human trafficking. But let's put the women in prison. I, mm, I'm not going to rant. I'm going to move on. I'm going stick to stick to the script. Here we go. So... Klein wanted to look good for the cameras, but immediately dropped that part where he actually did something good and made changes in the world. In April of 2001, Kathy was called to DynCorp headquarters and immediately fired over those quote-unquote time card issues that were non-existent. Jamie Popwell, who was the contingent commander that replaced Reed Jones, was the one who had to give her this news. Apparently, Pascal Budge, their site manager, was out of town, so Jamie Popwell had to do his dirty work. Pascal Budge was the guy we talked about in part one who had a permanent position with DynCorp and would get a bonus for every mission that had, quote, no issues. And Kathy, along with her other colleagues who were working hard, were causing a lot of issues. But we all know there was no issue with her time cards. There was never an issue. There was never going to be an issue. But DynCorp leadership insisted that she falsified her time cards and they told her that they were considering opening investigation. If that was a threat or a scare tactic, it didn't work because Kathy was like, yeah, great. I want an investigation done by the UN. And Jamie Popwell told her that it was not UN policies. It was DynCorp policies that she'd broken. So the UN wouldn't be doing the investigation. He fired her then and there on the spot. But Kathy refused to sign her letter of termination without further investigation. Because she's the queen. Okay. Kathy left Jamie's office and went straight to Madeline, who said that they absolutely cannot do that and that she had a right to a hearing and investigation, which is protocol. Madeline believed that it was because of what Kathy had uncovered about DynCorp and said that Kathy needed to get a lawyer's help as soon as possible. Madeline also sent an appeal letter to the IPTF commissioner's office, which is totally separate from the DynCorp people. They all agreed to help her and they were glad to hear that she didn't sign anything. The IPTF people told her to just continue showing up for her job as usual, which I can't imagine how scary that would have been. Essentially, the time card issue they were holding over her head was something that had been taken care of long ago. Initially, they accused her of falsifying her timesheets and said that there were six to ten days that were unaccounted for 
But then, of course, they couldn't actually find that report that said anything about that. So then they had to come up with something real to fire her over. And it was an issue that wasn't even that big of an issue to begin with. In part one, I briefly talked about when Kathy was on her way back to Bosnia after some time off, and she and a bunch of the other monitors had a flight that got canceled. That was the first time that she met SRSG Klein, who was part of that and yelled at everyone in the airport and refused to stay in an airport hotel and basically made everyone feel like crap. Drama queen. Anyway, the reason the flight was canceled was because the weather was so bad in Sarajevo and all of the power was out, so she had no way of getting in touch with anyone to let them know what was happening. At that time, Kathy was incredibly worried because she didn't want to run into any issues with her leave dates, like she was now. So she called her boyfriend Jan, who was still in the Netherlands, and asked him to send a letter through a fax explaining that she was stuck in the airport and that she just wanted to make sure that she was covered and there would be a paper trail so they wouldn't run into any issues of her, like, going AWOL or whatever the equivalent of that is. Jan sent the fax, and as soon as the Sarajevo office had power again, the fax went through, they got it, Kathy talked to her leadership, everything was documented, and everyone was fine, everything was excused because she wasn't returning late, it was out of her control, and there were multiple people on that flight who were trying to get back to the Sarajevo station that couldn't, so it was like a group issue. Until now... All of a sudden, they were bringing it back up again and saying that she lied on her time card. It was a mess and clearly just an excuse to fire her. The morning after they attempted to fire her, she showed back up to work, much to the surprise and apparent rage of Jamie Popwell. Kathy had the bright idea to start carrying a small tape recorder in her pocket just in case because, hello, she's brilliant. And I want to read this particular part in Kathy's own words. Kathy had a colleague named Rosario who went with her to deliver a few letters to some of the higher-ups to let them know that she would not be accepting their BS, essentially. That letter said, I am writing in the respect of the meeting, during which I was summarily dismissed by DynCorp, ostensibly under Section A17 IV, Termination for Cause. I note from the contract that I signed with DynCorp Aerospace Operations that the terms of the contract are governed and interpreted under the laws of England. I am sure that DynCorp are aware, therefore, that there is no provision under English law for summary dismissal without due process. In the event of allegations being made, there needs to be a full investigation, which would include interviewing and obtaining evidence from the person under suspicion. If necessary, this would be followed by a disciplinary hearing, at which time the individual should be accompanied by a representative of choice. Should dismissal be the decided outcome, then there would be a possibility of appeal, end quote. So Popwell was shocked, and after she delivered that letter, he literally ran after her. This is kind of a long section, but I wanted to read it because I think it's really important and shows a lot of character about who Jamie Popwell is and who Kathy is. It says, quote, As Rosario and I waited for the elevator, Popwell came charging around the corner like a raging bull, yelling that he needed to talk to me in his office immediately. No, you don't. I began, surreptitiously reaching into my pocket to click on the tape recorder. Anything you say should be said to my attorney. By this time, others had gathered around waiting for the elevator, but that did not stop Popwell. He clenched his teeth and shook his fist at me, and then he stepped within inches of my face. I could see Rosario twitching, but he was too small to take Popwell. I straightened up, trying not to wince as Popwell spat his words at me. I'm going to tell you this in front of him and everybody else. When you come back, you're not going to have a UN ID. You're not going to have a UN job. You do not have a job with the Department of State. The Department of State holds your contract and they are the ones pulling your contract. You don't have a right to appeal. You don't have a right to a dismissal hearing or anything. Do you understand? No, I did not understand. But I did not need to explain anything further to Jamie Popwell or anyone from DynCorp. Thank you, Jamie, was all I could think to say. I prayed my tape recorder was running. 
He continued, so when you come back, if you come back, you are not going to be allowed. You're not going to be allowed in the UN building. You're not going to be allowed on UN property. Do you understand? Thank you, Jamie. You are not being paid. Thank you, Jamie. His face was bright red. You're welcome. After the scene at the elevator, Rosario and I went to his office where we closed the door and looked at each other with disbelief over what just happened. What the heck was that? I asked. Rosario shrugged, speechless. Then we both started laughing and shaking our heads. An icon. Is there anything more satisfying than someone blowing up at you and you're able to like stay calm in that moment and then laugh about it? It's the best revenge. So she delivered those letters and then she kept showing up for work and refused to leave without them giving her the proper paperwork, chance of appeal, etc. that I laid out in that portion that I read. There was also another layer to it because DynCorp hadn't informed the UN that they wanted to terminate her. And since she technically worked for the UN as well, everyone has to be on the same page in order to terminate an employee. So Kathy was still working at the IPTF station. That all happened at the headquarters. So she went back to her regular IPTF station for work as usual. Her supervisor was again very surprised to see her there. She gave him the exact same rundown and explained that she would not be leaving without the UN being involved in the process. Her supervisor quickly called Jamie Popwell, who immediately sent a letter to the UN personnel office, who immediately sent that letter to her regional commander, thus walking right into the trap that Kathy had set. She now held in her hands full proof that both DynCorp and the UN had refused her right to due process. So she handed that letter over to her legal team and they got to work. With that, they took back her UN ID cards. She went through the checkout process and prepared to leave Sarajevo. Two super important things that she did before she got the F out of there. Number one, she had a duffel bag full of the reports she'd been working on that she kept photocopies of. Because if you remember in part one, every time she handed reports to the higher ups to do something with them, they always mysteriously went missing. So she had her own copies of everything. And two, she talked to as many people as she possibly could to gather information about the corruption happening at every level so she could build a case. Then she did something insane and brave. She talked to the media and spilled everything she had, the cover-ups, the lack of investigations, all of it. After her interview with Tanya Domi, many, 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 many other employees came forward and a ton of articles ended up following Kathy's that led to everyone kind of getting the gist of what was going on. As she prepared for her final day in Sarajevo, Kathy said that she felt this weird paranoia because she knew that these people were pissed at her and that she had a lot of dirt on them and the corruption. She'd thought back to the first time she'd had an issue with a higher up who reminded her that quote unquote vehicle accidents happen all the time there. That was a threat. Luckily, her car was fine. She was able to make it back to her apartment safely, and when she got there, nothing was out of place. She said that she had expected to walk in to find the place ransacked, but luckily, that hadn't happened. As she was packing up, someone knocked on her door, which scared the crap out of her, as she imagined the absolute worst. It was her good friend Thor, who was normally very happy-go-lucky and excited to see her, but this time, he was standing on her doorstep, all business. She started to talk to tell him what was going on, and he cut her off, saying that they needed to talk in his car. Thor had two of his colleagues from the organized crime unit with him, and they told her, quote, We overheard some chatter at Main HQ. We think your phone has been bugged and likely your apartment, too. We have reason to believe that you're in danger, end quote. While that was probably terrifying to hear, Kathy said that it gave her like a slight feeling of relief because she was not alone in sensing that danger. And she said that paranoia for a cop was like a surgeon having a hand tremor. It's not good. So this proved that she wasn't just jumping to the worst conclusions. She actually could possibly be in danger. 
But this meant that she needed to get out of there like right now. And when she pressed Thor further about what exactly he'd heard, he told her, quote, significant chatter implying bodily harm, end quote. As she drove out of Sarajevo the next day, Thor followed her for several miles out of the city just to make sure that no one followed her and that everything was okay. In one of my favorite quotes from this entire book, Kathy said, quote, On that day in April 2001, I drove nonstop out of the country. I may have been forced out, but this was not over. DynCorp, global leader in business of military strategy, nation rebuilding, world security, and counterintelligence had underestimated one thing, a 40-year-old divorced mom from Lincoln, Nebraska, end quote. Give Kathy a crown, because she is our queen now. Once she left Sarajevo, Kathy hired a lawyer named Karen Bailey to help her build her case, and in June of 2001, they officially filed a lawsuit against DynCorp for unfair dismissal due to a protected disclosure, a.k.a. whistleblowing. Kathy's whole team fully believed, and I do also, and probably most of you, fully believed that they fired her for trying to make noise about what was really going on. Since DynCorp headquarters were technically based in the UK, they had to follow the UK laws, which is why she was able to get a UK tribunal. Also, when I read that portion of her letter, I mentioned that as well, but basically the UK laws are what they have to follow because that's where their headquarters are based, even though they're technically a US company with contractors. But according to that UK law that they had to be held to, you can't just fire people over nothing. Kathy and her lawyer Karen had so much work ahead of them to put a case together with everything from the dozens of accusations against the IPTF agents, the lack of agenda, the alleged cover-ups, and Kathy's unfair dismissal. Of course, since she did that very public interview that led to other people doing interviews, and then she filed the lawsuit, the news made it back to her old offices in Sarajevo, and they began trying to cover their asses, as usual. In July of 2001, the month after she filed her lawsuit, the mission responded with their new fancy UN training program called STOP, which stands for Special Trafficking Operations Program. SRSG Klein chose a French journalist named Celia de Laverne to be the advisor on gender policy and the head of STOP. Celia would lead the international and local police on brothel raids throughout the country with absolutely no police background and no prior experience working in any way with victims of human trafficking. But yeah, let's just give her this hugely important position with no experience. She was a reporter, and I'm sure that she was very talented at what she did, but it kind of seems like, to me, she was brought in because she would know how to publicly tell the story and make them all look good. Just my opinion. The STOP team estimated that approximately 25% of the women and girls working in clubs and bars had in fact been trafficked, but Martina Vandenberg, who wrote the 2002 Human Rights Watch Report on Bosnia, countered, quote, Non-governmental experts working to stop trafficking caution that the stats remain unreliable. Estimated as many as 2,000 women and girls from former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe have found themselves trapped in Bosnian brothels, end quote. Over the next two years, STOP raided between 240 and 470 alleged brothels. That range of numbers is hugely different, and that's because there were differing reports released by the UN stats and Celia's stats in her biography. Also during that time, a BBC journalist, Sue Lloyd Roberts, and a camera crew followed STOP around for their documentary called Boys Will Be Boys. That documentary aired a year after STOP had been in action. Everything I have seen from Sue is incredible. She does amazing work. Sue noted that a lot of the girls were not happy to see the STOP team, and Celia explained to her that it was actually because the girls were afraid of them because the bar owners had told the girls that the IPTF showing up was bad news because they would sell them 
buy them and put them in jail. So she was essentially saying that it was the bar owners who told them that they should be afraid when the IPTF comes, but Sue was able to figure out that the problem was also that some of the girls were confused. Some policemen come to the bars at night as their quote-unquote clients, while others in the same uniforms come by day as their rescuers. Sue and her BBC crew went back to that same bar later on, and it was back to business as usual. Nothing had been done, nothing had been shut down, it was all just for show for the cameras. Madeline Reese was interviewed for the Boys Will Be Boys documentary and was asked if the raids actually achieved anything. Madeline shook her head sadly and said that the raids alone did not work because traffickers were not that stupid. They would keep going, but just be sneakier, and instead of a nightclub, they would move things to a discreet room above a restaurant or the women would be delivered directly to hotels or apartments. When she explained that portion, Sue asked her why they even bothered doing the raids, and Madeline told her, quote, show and tell, so that we look as if we've dealt with the problem, because if it's underground, then it's not an identifiable problem, so we can move on. The United Nations says, yet again, it has done something, when in fact, it has not done anything, end quote. Again, all of these humans are so incredible. Madeline Reese is a badass woman, and I just, I really enjoy listening to her talk. Also, you can actually watch that Boys Will Be Boys documentary on YouTube. It's really good. Someone uploaded the full thing, so I will link that in the description of this episode. The documentary is really good, and it features Kathy and Madeline, along with some of the survivors of these brothels. Sue also did a fabulous job calling out the different stories told by SRSG Klein and totally stands her ground when he tries to downplay some of the things that happened. At the end of 2002, Stop claimed that it closed 142 brothels, interviewed 1,600 women and girls, rescued 265 victims, and repatriated 186 victims to their home countries. But it seems like only a small fraction of the victims actually made it home. Stop originally estimated that 25% of women in brothels had been trafficked, so why was it only 8%? that were found during the raids that were actually repatriated. SRSG Klein was interviewed by Tim Sebastian for BBC Hard Talk, and Tim went in. He went after Klein. Tim called out Klein, stating very clearly that there had been UN officials engaged in trafficking women. Klein said, not true at all. Tim replied, these are clear allegations. Klein fought back. Allegations and rumors and hearsay. I can categorically state that not a single United Nations police officer since the beginning of the mission, and 10,000 of them have been there, has been involved in the trafficking of a single woman. Tim responded, There are people who have gone against that. Richard Monk, for instance, who ran the UN police operation in Bosnia until 1999. He said there were dreadful things going on by UN police officers from a number of countries. Officers were having sex with minors and prostitutes. That cuts directly across what you've just told me. Klein replied, Maybe during his tenure, not during mine. No international police officer has been involved in the trafficking of women. Dude, you can't be serious right now. You've done press conferences explaining that there were officers sent home over sex trafficking issues, and now you're saying that that didn't happen? Then Tim specifically brought up Kathy's allegations, and Klein said that every allegation had been investigated, they went through every case file there was, and there was nothing to investigate or prove the claims that were made in the files. Kathy had so many files from her time working the gender desk, and her human rights files that had dozens of actual photographs, surveillance tapes, and written witness statements saying otherwise, but okay. Kathy figured that her files must have just conveniently gone missing, which is why she had copies of everything. 
In this interview, Tim continued to press Klein on how their findings differed from the actual evidence. The people doing the inspections on those files were hired by the UN, who never contacted the individuals or did follow-up interviews with anyone involved. So, not investigating something doesn't mean that you've cracked the case and now it's just been handled and everything's better. Klein continued to insist that there may have been previous issues, but there weren't any more, and Tim reminded him, quote, These issues don't just go away overnight. Originally, Klein said that 24 people were sent home since he got there, including six Americans, and that he would not tolerate any of the stuff they were doing. The situation he was referring to was in October of 2001, when six high-level IPTF workers at Main HQ had been implicated in sex trafficking. Before any kind of investigation could happen, the women were repatriated to their hometowns in Romania. A few international affairs officers wanted to fly out to Romania and interview them because it was extremely important information, but Klein wouldn't allow them to. Instead, in a very unexpected and unusual move, Klein went to Romania to do the interviews himself. It turns out that a woman named Alina said that an Argentinian IPTF officer, who was an infrequent client of the brothel, paid around 1300 US dollars for her freedom. So Klein went to Romania and had Alina meet him in Bucharest where he showed her an album with 20 IPTF officers' photos. She could identify all but three of the men in the album. All of these officers knew about the girls at the bar but did nothing. Only one of those men was sent home who was the Argentine officer who had paid for her release. Alina was featured in the Boys Will Be Boys documentary where she talked about this experience. And then Sue Lloyd Roberts also had the chance to call out Klein on camera and he tried to deny everything just like he did with that first interview. Sue asked him about the incident with Alina and his trip to Romania to interview her and he said that he had so much detective experience, more than anyone else on his team, so he had to be the one to go and do that interview. And he showed her the pictures of those officers and he said that she only identified one officer, the Argentine officer who had paid for her freedom, and then that person was disciplined and sent home. In the documentary, Sue gives him the chance to explain the situation further, and then was like, oh, sure, 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 sounds good, and then hits him with, okay, how come two days ago, when I spoke to Alina, she said that she was able to identify 17 of them? And then in this interview, Klein gets all flustered and upset and is like, that's an outright lie. And I have the documentation to prove that and goes on and on about how when you interview people, they'll go wherever you lead them, etc., etc. And Sue was like, okay, great. Sounds good. So let's see the document. And they wouldn't show it to her. And don't you think that would be a really quick way to prove or disprove what was said in his interview with Alina? Rather than saying that they have documentation and that she was being unfair, but then was like, but you can't see it. Sue flat out asked Klein if he was trying to protect the people implicated, and he said, quote, Well, that's rather rude. I mean, I thought you were a serious journalist. She did not identify 17 people to me. She identified one Argentine and one possible other, but she wasn't sure. That was all. So let's not get carried away. These people, based on how you ask the question, how you stimulate the conversation, will say anything you want, end quote. In her book, Kathy made the point that if these people were so unreliable, then why would Klein, the head of the mission, the big boss, be going out of his way to go and interview if it was so pointless because they were so unreliable? You can't stand it. After that interview, Sue went and asked Madeline why the head of the mission would be doing this interview without anyone else going, and Madeline told her, quote, I cannot imagine. I really cannot imagine why. 
it's outside the jurisdiction, it certainly would not fall within the standard operating procedures, end quote, and said that it was entirely inappropriate for him to do that at all. So as much as they tried to push it away, all of these different things were finally coming to light through the media and Kathy was ready to go to court and at least get the things handled with her unfair firing to start the ball rolling. An official court date was set for April 22nd, 2002 and Kathy's team had gathered as many witnesses as they could to get ready to testify in Kathy's defense. Madeline technically couldn't be called as a witness because of her UN immunity. Again, I still don't understand that. But Madeline was willing to file to have that immunity waived, and this is an action that shows how brave Madeline is and that she was willing to risk her career to go on record about the abuse of power that she saw over and over again. So part of the court procedure is that both sides have to show the evidence that they have against the other side as part of discovery. And when Kathy got the documents from DynCorp, it was very clear that they had little to no evidence against her, which we already kind of assumed. Pascal Budge, the site manager at DynCorp, tried his best to dig up dirt on Kathy, and he even called around after she left to try to get people to talk negatively about her and to back him up, but there wasn't really anyone that came forward with any information because Kathy wasn't doing anything wrong, and she was fantastic at her job, according to the people who were doing things correctly and legally. In my opinion, because of the pile of evidence Kathy had and the very little evidence DynCorp had, that caused them to make this next move. A week before the trial, a DynCorp attorney reached out to Kathy and offered her a $30,000 settlement to drop the lawsuit. To put that amount into perspective, $30,000 in 2002 is equivalent to just under $48,000 in 2023 money, so it's a good chunk of money. When her lawyer told her about the settlement, Kathy laughed. Her lawyer, Karen, told her that that amount was three times what she would likely get if they won the case, and that actually would have been a hugely helpful sum of money. Kathy had struggled to find a law enforcement job in the Netherlands while she worked on her case against DynCorp because of that mark on her record as being the time card issues filed. People didn't want to give her a job, and she couldn't exactly explain the situation. While she was hired to do multiple speaking engagements and trainings in the human rights work, um, Pulling a full-time job just hadn't been an option for her and it was really difficult. So because of her struggle to find that full-time law enforcement job, Kathy was working as a data entry clerk in the Netherlands. But the thing was, Kathy didn't care about this money. This was never about money. She told Karen that she was not interested in settling and said, quote, no matter what they offer, even if they add another zero to the figure, tell them I'm not interested and I'd like you to add a go to hell, end quote. As her tribunal date approached, Kathy was not looking forward to the trial. The prep work alone took a huge toll on her mentally, and the last year of struggles was really starting to wear on her. During opening statements, Kathy laid out the events that led up to her dismissal and the unfair way that she was treated. She finished her opening statement by saying, quote, It should be noted that all of the men involved in my demotion and termination had made a career out of mission life and most are still working for DynCorp. I have been unable to return to international law enforcement in any capacity, even though many organizations are using my case and experiences as an example and model on how to improve mission policing and human rights investigations, end quote. And as far as evidence goes, Kathy had that tape recorder that she kept in her pocket, so they had some actual recorded conversations that her team was able to play for the court. Kathy and her team also did some basic investigoogling about some of the men hired by DynCorp, and found some information that should have ruled them out for sure as even a potential employee. And then on top of that, she also had her duffel bag full of the files she luckily thought to have photocopied. So Kathy's team came prepared with a lot and DynCorp came prepared with next to nothing. 
The DynCorp witnesses were the American contingent commander, Jamie Popwell, DynCorp site manager, Pascal Budge, DynCorp junior vice president of European operations, Spence Wickham. Seeing them all waltz into the courtroom as if nothing had happened, lit another fire in Kathy, and she confidently went through the trial. Their first small victory came when the DynCorp barrister, Ben Elkington, and Kathy's barrister, Stephanie, had a private conversation. Elkington said that DynCorp agreed that the dismissal was unfair and they did not follow the correct procedure, but they still insisted that she would have been fired even if an appeal had been granted. He brought up Kathy's email and said that it would be Kathy's team's job to prove that the dismissal was because of whistleblowing and not because of falsifying time cards, which should not be that hard to prove considering the mountain of evidence that Kathy's team had and the lack of evidence in the DynCorp court. And just a quick reminder, because we've gone over so much information in this episode, the thing that they were trying to really get Kathy on was that trip where she was coming back into Bosnia. Her flight was delayed, but she got in touch with the correct people and they signed off on it. But they dragged that back up after it was already taken care of and were trying to use that as an excuse for firing Kathy, saying that she had essentially falsified her time cards and was being paid for time when she wasn't in the country. So that was the major discussion in court on their side. First up for DynCorp was Spence Wickham, who said that Kathy's grounds for dismissal were consistent with three other monitors who were also terminated for time card fraud. Kathy's team had a rebuttal because they had already investigated those other three cases, and they were not even close to the same situation as Kathy's. For example, one of those cases involved a station commander who was absent for 23 days without leave, and then he returned and attempted to lie about his absence, being like, I was here the whole time, what do you mean? However, in his case, the UN followed the correct investigation procedure through internal affairs, and the commander was given a legal rep to help him during his defense. During that whole investigation, the commander still worked and was paid in full while his hearing was prepared and while all of his stuff was pending. Eventually, he admitted to being absent and he was terminated, but his name was never slandered around the office, and they definitely didn't just kick him out of his position with no notice and no warnings. He had all the time in the world and then admitted to the thing they were accusing him of. One day he was just gone and no one ever talked about it again. Kathy's lawyer, Stephanie, asked Wickham about the correct procedure, which was fair and comprehensive, yet Kathy was thrown out with no questions asked. Wickham admitted that the outcome could have been different if procedure had been followed. Yeah, again, you think? Pascal Budge was up next, and he claimed to not know anything at all about Kathy's email that set this all in motion, so he couldn't possibly have used that as ammo to get her fired. But Kathy's team was quickly able to prove that that was not true because they had a printed reply from Pascal Budge about the email. Then Budge testified that he had been made aware that there was a review about the timesheets happening, but that it was not urgent, and then after he got that notice, he left for a month-long vacation. While he was out of the country, suddenly it became urgent, and through rushed international phone conversations, he instructed a logistics manager to terminate her without due process. The thing is, though, the termination letter had already been typed up, signed by Budge, and ready to go before he left the country, and before her conversation with that manager that fired Kathy, where she had no chance to defend herself. They asked Budge what the deal was, why it was so urgent that he couldn't just wait until he got back. Just all of a sudden, while he was out of town, he just had to get her fired that moment and get her out of there as soon as possible. Budge shook his head, struggling for words, because that's a great point, isn't it? And then told the court, quote, I don't recall. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you don't recall. Next up was Jamie Popwell, who was the one that screamed at her with a rage close to physical altercation. 
that was questioned on day two. Popwell insisted that one day's inaccuracy on a timesheet would be sufficient as dismissal for gross misconduct. One day. You make one mistake on a timesheet, fired. Popwell was the contingent commander. He was in charge of the welfare of DynCorp monitors on the mission, and that is a really huge job. And he had a lot of responsibilities and a lot of people he was looking over. But in that tribunal, he stated that the most important part of his whole day was, quote, filling out my timesheet, end quote. I just don't understand how these people sit there with a straight face and just spew nonsense and say that they don't remember certain details and say that they have no idea. It's just, it's ridiculous and must have been so infuriating to sit through in court. The most important part of his entire day as a supervisor was filling in his timesheet. I'm totally sure that if he had had one error on his time card and they tried to fire him over that, he'd be like, well, it is the most important thing. I deserve to be fired. Please. There was a two-month period where the court process was on hold while they waited for Madeline's UN immunity to be waived. After that two-month period, they picked back up and J. Michael Steers was called as a witness. And as a reminder, Steers was the one who said that Kathy was showing signs of burnout and made all of those awful remarks about the women being trafficked in a way that was just shocking and horrible to read and hear. Steers was questioned in the tribunal and said that the meeting after her email where he told her she was burnt out was a quote-unquote friendly conversation and said that he had concluded that her email was a quote-unquote cry for help. So what, he was doing her a favor when he threatened that she wouldn't have a job after her vacation? Steers insisted that DynCorp had wanted her fired at that point, but that he found her a new position for her own good because he's just a saint. I can't. His actions led to her getting demoted to a desk job away from any of the police work and human rights training that she'd been doing and working so hard at. Everyone else interviewed on the stand about her redeployment to a different position agreed that it was, in fact, a demotion, but Steers tried to insist that it wasn't. It's like DynCorp didn't quite understand the concept of the internet yet. It's pretty fascinating. Kathy's team, very easily, dug into Steers' background and found that he was originally the deputy chief of police at the Aurora, Colorado Police Department, where he was sued by a female officer named Barbara Wimmer. Barbara filed a claim against Steers and the police chief, who had forced her to work in the same office with someone who had allegedly stalked, burglarized, beaten, and raped her. By the way, that guy got off with a written reprimand um, and like a slap on the wrist as a punishment while Barbara was forced to continue working with him day in and day out. Barbara applied to transfer multiple times, but was told by Steers, who is just a real boy's boy, quote, get over it and stop running, end quote. These people, I can't. Once she filed that lawsuit against him, Steers quickly ran away to Bosnia with DynCorp and was working in a very powerful position, making everyone miserable and acting like a misogynist, in my opinion. Meanwhile, a Colorado jury found Steers and the chief guilty of outrageous conduct and ruled that they were each liable for $250,000 of a million-dollar verdict in favor of Barbara. Good for her for going up against them. Seriously. It's like Steers didn't understand the concept of public knowledge, and when they read this report to the court... He was shocked. He turned bright red and did his best to stammer out pointless denials while the DynCorp lawyer said that it wasn't fair because it wasn't related to the current case, etc. But the court ruled that it spoke loudly to Steers' attitude and character, especially towards women. So yes, it was very relevant. 
Once that was ruled that that in fact did matter and could be shared in court, the DynCorp lawyer Elkington demanded to know where this information even came from, how did they even know about it, etc, etc. And again, Kathy comes through and says, quote, The internet and knowing how to do a background investigation. It is all public record and I am, after all, a trained investigator, end quote. <laughs> Kathy, everybody. I love her. A man named Dennis Leducer was the one who took over Steers' position when he left. Um, and he was not in court despite his emails being entered into the record. And he had a very similar background to Steers. Leducer had been fired from his assistant sheriff's position in Orange County, California, after five co-workers filed sexual harassment suits against him. The settlements in those suits reached over $1 million for the women. Barely a year after that, Leducer was working for the UN mission, speaking at graduation ceremonies of local police officers, and overseeing monitors who were policing, and let's be honest, committing, crimes against women. That was part of his job, was to make sure that the women in these countries were being protected. That's who they chose. These men were Kathy's bosses and held some of the highest offices of authority in the U.S. International Police, and one could argue, allegedly, they had no respect for women in general, as proven by their history, and the history of them covering the asses of men who were attacking women or being the attackers themselves. And yet, they were put into these positions where they were supposed to be doing work towards making things better for people, with that in the not-so-distant past. Madeline was able to testify on Kathy's behalf and stated that Kathy's job in the position of gender monitor was to take, quote, all aspects of policing which related to gender-based violence, and this included trafficking. Clearly, this was a totally impossible task, end quote. Considering the background of the higher-ups and the piles of reports always going missing, along with the dozens of cases shown in Kathy's files that IPTF officers were involved and that the higher-ups did nothing, it made her job pretty difficult. It was clear that they didn't care at all about the trafficked women that they were sent there to help. When the trafficking victims and the other human rights office workers presented their cases, there were no investigations and no one was ever disciplined. Madeline pointed out that the human rights office knew how important Kathy's work was, but many others felt the opposite, saying, quote, I cannot help but comment that there seemed to be real concern that she was being too effective and that was inhibiting their freedom, end quote. They pointed out that Kathy faced open hostility from IPTF officers, particularly the Americans, as shown in the emails and voice recordings that they had in court. And after Kathy was removed, her important position was unfilled for months and the work on human trafficking issues were at a standstill, which hurt the whole mission of the gender office. They were already leaning in her favor, I'm sure, and then Kathy's team dropped a bomb. Deputy Commander Dennis Leducer, who was not there in court when he should have been, had been caught visiting a brothel himself. Prior to being repatriated, UN officials asked Leducer to sign a document indicating that because of his behavior in Bosnia, he would be ineligible to work for the UN ever in future missions. It was unknown if this document would prevent him from pursuing another role with DynCorp or any other private military contractors, and that brought up the question. Would any future employer be able to find this documentation of this incident? I'm going to finish up talking about the court hearings with one last piece of information. Before this hearing, DynCorp was supposed to hand over every document of every disciplinary action taken since 1996. In their case file, they identified 35 cases of misconduct ranging from criminal to administrative. So that includes assault, alcohol-related incidents, engaging in prostitution and trafficking, and several violations of UN procedures, including abandonment of post or leave abuse, things like that that are more back-end documentation. Only 19 of those 35 people listed had been actually terminated. 
DynCorp also had to provide the details of all the terminations since 1999 specifically, and only nine names were given with explanations, including Kathy's, who, by the way, had the longest explanation of the bunch. And among those, only one case cited a monitor admitting to using a brothel, but the reason for sending him home was listed as participating in an unauthorized raid. SRSG Klein's previous statement was that three American monitors were sent home over that particular raid, but only one of them was actually listed on record. And to finish it up, Leducer's case was not on there, which led them to believe that someone at DynCorp hoped that the court wouldn't even know about Leducer's situation, and they wouldn't have if Madeline hadn't waived her UN immunity. She actually saw the paperwork and was part of that process with Leducer, and that's why she was able to testify it. If she hadn't done that, they wouldn't have even known that this guy who was accusing Kathy of all of these things had been removed from his position for using a brothel. So much for them trying to keep that a secret because there were reporters in that courtroom, and his photo was then in the Times of London, quote, implicated Dennis Leducer, a UN official, under the headline, quote, woman sacked for revealing UN links with sex trade end quote. Everyone's doing the work. I think it probably goes without saying Kathy won her case. It was a unanimous agreement of the court that she clearly had been fired for unfair reasons. They called Steers an unreliable witness and agreed that he was out to get her fired. The tribunal announced its unanimous decision on August 2nd, 2002, and it stated, quote, we are driven inexorably to the conclusion that Mr. Steers from October 9th, 2000, for whatever reason, had his knife in the applicant and was determined that she should be removed from her role as gender monitor with IPTF. Mr. Steers was, we find, an unreliable witness. Not only does his evidence conflict with that of his more junior colleagues, but even on its own terms, we find it unpersuasive. Steers says that he redeployed the applicant for her own good because he thought she was burnt out. Had he sincerely held that belief, we are in no doubt that he would have arranged for a medical examination of the applicant at the very least and taken steps to protect her physical and mental health. He took no such steps at all. The applicant was a marked woman, and the officials of IPTF, many of whom were employees of the respondents, knew that the senior officers of IPTF wanted her out, end quote. Oh, it's so satisfying to hear them say all of those things that we've all been thinking. Kathy used this spotlight as an opportunity to push for change in UN policies and has done countless interviews and public speaking events on the matter since then. After the ruling, DynCorp tried to appeal and get the case tried again, but finally just dropped it, and Kathy was paid what she was rightfully owed. Three days after they dropped the appeal, they did some big fat cleanup work and issued a press release that DynCorp was taking on a $22 million contract to police Iraq and used Kathy's case as a way to announce to the world that it had adopted, quote, a new corporate culture and said that ethical indiscretions would never happen again. They bragged about how successful their mission was in Bosnia, and despite the clear issues, the State Department decided that it was a success and they should repeat this. I can't figure out why. With all that fancy flowery talk of new policies and changing their ways, it didn't shock anybody that they, repeat, that they repeated their exact same scams and bullshit. They rebranded and put money into different companies with DynCorp at the head, and they moved their DynCorp headquarters from the UK to, I believe, Romania? Uh, one could think that maybe that was because in the UK they had been forced to go through a court process where they had to play by the rules, and if they had moved it to a different country with less resources, then they probably would just never end up going to court, or the court processes would take so long that people would end up dropping their lawsuits against them, allegedly. It's just a, you know, just something to think about. 
So they did their best to rebrand and to put money into different companies with DynCorp at the head, and they became a multi-billion dollar powerful machine, but they had constant issues, including not properly accounting for $1.2 billion from the U.S. State Department to train the Iraqi police, among obviously all of their dozens of other issues. DynCorp still had a ton of money and a ton of willing employees because they accepted people with no training and questionable motives to go to high-paying, zero-accountability travel abroad programs. Over the years, DynCorp contractors had countless legal mishaps, including murder, drug and weapon smuggling, rapes caught on videotape, and major accounting blunders that lost the U.S. millions of dollars. But they kept getting awarded government contracts, and taxpayer money was going right in their pockets for over a decade. Kathy hoped that there was a chance that her work actually did cause real changes, but she constantly got emails from DynCorp contractors who were wrongfully terminated and witnessed unspeakable things. Specifically in 2009, she got an email from someone with an awful story of her time working with DynCorp in Iraq. She had made a quote-unquote anonymous call to the DynCorp hotline about her supervisor, who she claimed had been on paid vacation for 76 days. That complaint, the anonymous complaint, then landed right in her supervisor's lap with her name on it. Weird, since it was supposed to be anonymous and that's the whole point of the hotline. But soon after, she was fired for quote, falsifying her timesheets, end quote. When she appealed this decision, her supervisor told her, quote, you don't know who you're messing with, end quote. When Kathy heard this story, she was very curious, and so she asked this woman if she recognized any of the names of the supervisors that she'd gone up against in court back in 2002. This was 2009 when this woman emailed her. The woman knew Jamie Popwell. He was the DynCorp project manager in Sudan at the time that that girl sent that email unbelievable. To wrap up this episode, I want to read a page from Kathy's book that was published in 2010. She said, quote, Despite DynCorp's expanding dossier of firing whistleblowers, the men who testified against me and who were ruled to be not credible and having acted in discriminatory, malicious ways were not even fired or demoted. They kept their high-level positions. Several, such as Pascal Budge and Jamie Popwell, have since been promoted to high-level management positions within DynCorp. Given this chain of command, what is the likelihood of achieving significant and widespread improvement? DynCorp is a company that likes to keep a low profile. In its view, the less the general public is aware of it, the better. In my view, even a two-year-old knows it's much easier to get away with bad behavior when no one is looking. In the years I worked for DynCorp, I became privy to some amazing taxpayer abuse. Sketchy billing, overstaffing, puffed-up budgets, half-finished or barely-touched projects, shoddily-trained staff, and a prevailing attitude of, quote, DynCorp isn't worrying about it, why should you? It was well known our checks would just keep coming regardless of overall job performance, but this just scrapes the surface. It would be easy to attribute the misbehavior to isolated incidents of a couple of bad apples, as DynCorp, the State Department, and factions of the UN would like people to believe. But the disappearance of files from human trafficking cases that implicated DynCorp personnel, the abrupt and unexplained cancellation of legitimate human rights investigations, men from around the globe getting away with buying and raping teenage girls, these are not isolated incidents and cannot be dismissed as merely the actions of a few rogue individuals. I recognize that, like any random group of individuals, all police forces can have some bad apples. And I can't deny that some cops still subscribe to the unwritten code that they should cover for their fellow officers or at least turn a blind eye to misconduct. But that is not how Hawk trained me. Police officers should be held to a higher standard, both morally and legally. It was an ordinary conscience that compelled me to blow the whistle on DynCorp, 
I was the first American police officer to go public with these allegations, and it did not occur to me to dwell on the fact that I was going against one of the largest and most powerful corporations in the world, or that the outcome would be exactly what one might expect from a multi-billion dollar company fighting an individual. The company would survive and thrive, end quote. In conclusion, people suck. However, good news, there are also people who freaking rock and are willing to do the work to stop all of the sucking. In 2010, there were bills passed that would hold all American government employees and contractors working overseas accountable to U.S. law. Yay. Can't believe that it took that long, but it's better late than never. That just seems so obvious and more than reasonable to expect that they should be reporting the crimes being committed by their workers in other countries, but again, better late than never. As for DynCorp, they had a handful more scandals before they were bought out by another company in 2020 and are now under the Amentum company name. One more time, I cannot recommend this book enough. It's such an important story. It's incredibly well-written and it's a quick read. I'll have a link of this book in the description of this episode if you want to check it out um, or do what I did and support your local library. Thank you for being here for this episode and for this two-part series. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, <clears throat> Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, keep calling out injustices and always invest to Google your supervisors. I will talk to you soon. Bye.